Hello, podcasters. Are you hungry? I am. Well, actually, I always am. That's why I'm doing a new series called Out to Lunch with Jay Rayner, where I take interesting people to eat in a restaurant I reckon they'll like. I've spent my career interviewing over the dinner table. You just find that people relax more when they're being pelted with fine wines and being fed ample food. So in this first series, I'll be breaking bread with a whole bunch of people, including Richard E. Grant. Like a multiple rolling gastronomic... Orgasm. Mel C, Stanley Tucci, Tracy Ullman and Jamie Dornan. Out to lunch with Jay Rayner. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. You know you don't want to miss an episode. Ultra Remainers, welcome to the podcast that provokes howls of frustration from those who wish we'd all voted properly, i.e. the way they want, instead of stubbornly voting the way we want. I'm Ros Taylor, and this week we'll be talking about those bombshell local election results, you know, the ones where everyone voted for Remain parties because they wanted to just get Brexit done. (laughs) And we'll be asking what that vote means for this month's European Parliament elections, which... Cabinet Minister David Lillington confirmed yesterday, Tuesday, Britain really will be participating in, whether the Conservatives like it or not. Plus, we'll be looking at the prospects of a Tory Labour compromise to push Brexit through and whether Labour Remainers can force a confirmatory referendum onto the deal. Two of our regulars are here. Ian Dunt edits politics.co.uk and has seen Avengers Endgame twice since he was on the podcast last. <laughs> twice so far. Hello, Ian. How emotionally fragile are you now? Uh, pretty pretty fragile, actually. It's, it's when it goes from, you know, usually I can do the quite respectable crying in cinemas, like noiseless British crying. This no time I was... Now, now I'm not doing any spoilers, okay. apart from, from my own emotional state of just <laughs> heaving sobs. And being like, now I need to actually, this is actually quite shameful behaviour right now. Did you pick up any tips on how to defeat a power-crazed monster who dresses in yellow and purple and has made half of the population disappear? Uh, no, not so much, no. Ah, oh, shame. But it's been a big week for total government inefficiency when it comes to registering people to vote, especially EU citizens. What happened? And would it be too paranoid to imagine the government engineered this? Yeah, yeah, that's not that's not right. Um, what happened is there is a rule that's an EU-wide rule that says, you know, you can only vote in one place, right? I mean... Of course, if you're an EU citizen, so either your country of origin or your country of residence. And we know that it's an almighty faff, this second form. Right now, you probably, although there's some uncertainty around this, maybe on different areas, have to print out and either send off to them or take down to yourself to the local reg- election officer. Um, and they've known that was a problem since the last European elections. The Electoral Commission said it was going to do something about this back then, streamline the process. And then there was this thing that happened called Brexit. And the government spent a really long time going, these elections, these elections are not going to take place. So they prioritised other things. They're a bit buffeted by events, the Electoral Commission. And, um, you know, they're not in great shape, full stop, let alone on this issue. But then when this thing came around, they didn't have much of a chance. Now, could they have dealt with it better given where it was? Absolutely, Yes. They failed really to do anything, even when they realised something was taking place. They then, I think, unnecessarily launched a bit of an attack on information, uh, on data on data grounds, on the two organisations which had set up something to try and streamline the process. So you could basically go on a website in five minutes, you'd sign a thing on your screen, it turns it into a PDF, and that would then get emailed off locally. So they have not played a blinder, but this, you know, we are obviously, predictably, we're in cock-up rather than conspiracy land. 
Well, that's good to hear. I mean, it's good to hear insofar <laughs> as conspiracy. Also joining us is the most multi-talented Romaniac, Alexandreou, who can sail you around the Aegean, whip up an award-winning <laughs> chicken and pea tray bake, and sing you an aria from Mozart's Abduction from the Seraglio, all at the same time. <laughs> Hello, Alex. Hello. <laughs> what do you think of the obstacle course laid in front of EU citizens as, as one yourself who wanted to register to vote? As Ian has said, it's it's cock-up, not conspiracy, but it's it's still not a good look, is it? Well, I'm sort of between cock-up and conspiracy in that, yes, it's cock-up, but, but also it's never really been a priority for them. You know, mm. um, European citizens have always been low on their list of priorities. So it's something that was a problem last European election and the one before, and they still haven't done anything about it. And it's really easy to sort out because there's no information exchange between EU countries. We don't send them a list of people to take off their register. It's a system based on trust. You sign a declaration saying, I will vote here and, and don't intend to vote anywhere else. So, for example, in Holland, it's a, it's a, a negative system. You're on the register and then they send you a thing saying, if you want to be off it, let us know. Mm. Um, in a couple of other countries, the forms are available at polling stations. So you're on the register and you go there. And if you have an asterisk next to, next to your name, you sign the declaration form saying, I don't intend to vote in another European country. So it would be really easy to sort out. Mm. But, you know, it's never been a priority for them. And it would be pretty difficult anyway to vote in another European country. I mean, why, why would you really want to? Well, it wouldn't be impossible wouldn't because be impossible. European countries, uh, they, there's a range of dates. Uh, oh, right. Because okay. other countries are saying they don't have elections on a <laughs> Thursday, you see. Um, <laughs> yeah, we tend to have them on a Saturday or a Sunday um, when people don't actually have to take time off work. But they knew about this in 2014, didn't they? Because yeah. that was uh, the last time we had European elections and there were EU citizens turning up at the polling stations and being turned away for the same reasons. So they yeah. really have had five years to yeah. sort but, You know, in the broad Brexit uh, context where we've been disenfranchised from the main referendum and then been treated like shite for the last three years, being called pawns and citizens of nowhere and all of that, this is just a tiny little paper cut to attitude, <laughs> you know. This week's special guest is Alex Sobel, Labour and Cooperative MP for Leeds North West since 2017. Alex voted against Theresa May's deal. He's been fighting for membership of the single market. He's backed the confirmatory referendum that caused such friction between the Labour leadership, NEC and membership. And he went on the Put It to the People march too. So he's very much our kind of person. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> he's also a member of the Jewish Labour movement and has been in the thick of the fight against anti-Semitism in the party. So not much to talk about today, though. <laughs> I just pick all the easy ones. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Romaniacs, Alex. We always hear about these angry Brexit voting Labour constituencies in the north, but Leeds voted to remain by 50.3%. And do you worry about the supposed backlash from Leavers? I mean, I went and spoke to quite a lot of Leavers in the uh, local elections, and I will again in the run-up to European elections, and um, they are angry. Uh, there's no doubt about it. But also I think people underestimate the anger of Remainers. There are a percentage at either end of the spectrum who are angry. And so there's a lot of anger about. There's also a few people that aren't angry either way. So, you know, whichever way you look <laughs> at it, uh, you can always find somebody when you're knocking on 100 doors who you can have a conversation with. 
<laughs> also, I feel we don't have a baseline for anger in that I think Remainers were quite happy before the referendum and now they're really angry. Leavers were pretty angry before and they're still pretty angry. Mm. So the quotient of anger uptick mm. is quite small. <laughs> I, I think for the Leavers, um, the, when a politician turns up on their doorstep, their anger level rises quite considerably. <laughs> That's what I found. I have think, you, sorry, uh, sorry. Have you had any incidents where yeah, you know, you've had yeah, stuff I'd, thrown at you? Or? Thrown, well, shouting. I've not been thrown. My, I share an office with Lloyd Russell Moore and he was punched, but I've not been oh, physically no. assaulted in any way. But, yeah, I've had people shouting at me and people just being angry, people call me a traitor. Yeah, but um, and I've had lots of death threats online, but, no, I've not, not been physically assaulted. I had my, uh, my car, actually, my tyres got sashed in my car, but we can't... We didn't, at least didn't find anybody, so we can't definitively say whether that was a, a leave-remain incident or something else that I'd done as an MP that they'd slashed my tyres for. So, you know, we'll have to live in expectation to find out. Part of your political education was campaigning against actual street fascists in Leeds when you were a teenager. Do you think we were complacent as a country about potential for that sort of thing returning? I mean, it's, it's always been under the surface, I think, not just in this country, but in every European country. And we're seeing a rise of right-wing populism now around the world. And, you know... I know it's not fashionable anymore because of Brexit to talk about it, but I think austerity has driven that a lot as well. People's worsening living and social conditions um, is is feeds the far right because they've got somebody to blame, whether it's EU citizens or a shady, you know, global Jewish worldwide conspiracy. They 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 have an enemy to take it out upon, rather than the actual economic. Um, conditions that have caused um, those issues and Brexit just gives another layer so we you know for instance you know Tommy Robinson standing in the northwest to be an MEP and you know I've got a lot of sympathy for McDonald's having their milkshakes misused but I mean that's uh, that's that's um, that's a consequence of you know the far right rising in and, and people taking the fight to them I Never fought the far right with McDonald's milkshakes, but we, we did other things when I was a teenager. <laughs> Should we ask? <laughs> well, we can maybe get into that later. I've, yeah. I've heard it as this, uh, described as a, as a meeting of lactose with intolerance. Alex will be here with us throughout the show after these short messages from the other Alex. Don't forget the next Remaniacs Live is happening at the Leicester Square Theatre on Tuesday, May the 21st. We've got everything you could possibly want. Special guest Marcus Brigstock, an eve of EU elections zero-hour crisis special, and the launch of Dorian's new book, The Ministry of Truth, a biography of George Orwell's 1984 as well. Plus, we can exclusively reveal that our new capsule range of ultra-remainer merchandise will be on sale for the first time, so you can passively-aggressively wear the T-shirt or sip from a mug if you work, say, on the common desk at The Guardian to choose an entirely (laughs) random example. (laughs) Dorian, Ian and Naomi will be your panellists and tickets are on sale now at leicestersquaretheatre.com. If you're a Patreon supporter, check your inboxes for your discount code. 
Plus, after the roaring and powerful erotic success of our Donald Tusk romantic fiction <laughs> prize last week, so from I which I am that. still recovering, <laughs> we are pleased to announce another exciting creative writing challenge, the Marc Francois Battle Action War Stories Award. Send us 200 words of your finest boys' own war stories of the courageous member for Rayleigh and Wickford standing up for Queen and Country in the heat of battle. The winner will get a unique one-off I've Been Up the Jungle with Mark Francois Romaniac's T-shirt and we'll read out the winning entry on the show. Email your entry to info at remaniacs.com with the subject line, It Ain't Half Hot Mark, <laughs> by Friday 24th of May. And don't forget, Remaniacs live at the Leicester Square Theatre on Tuesday 21st of May. Tickets at leicestersquaretheatre.com. Thanks, Alex. Now, everything we talk about on the show could be moot if Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn finally do that deal they've been threatening to conclude for weeks, although it doesn't seem very likely. All weekend, May supporters like the dutiful Roy Stewart, although that's not to say he wouldn't be happy to take over, <laughs> should the circumstances mean he had to, insisted that the Conservatives and Labour were very, very close on Brexit and agreement was imminent, even as John Macdonald told Andrew Marr that there was no trust in the Prime Minister. <laughs> Ian, they were supposed to do a deal on Tuesday yesterday. Hopes are fading. What are the realistic prospects of one happening at all? Not good. I mean, I found all of these this chat about the fact that there's a deal that's about to come out a little bit bizarre throughout, really, and there's no deal today. She then comes out over the weekend with her big offer. The big, I mean, it's all, it's fuck it, it's like a comedy. It's like the big offer is, oh, and we'll do a customs union for the next two years. And you think, like, well, yeah, but you've got, already got like a transition period in your deal that can be extended up until the end of this, of the exact same period that you are already talking about for your temporary customs union. So, Remember, the transition keeps you closer to the EU than a customs union. Yeah, yeah. So it's literally less than nothing, her deal. It is half of what she was originally offering is her big deal to Labour. And she then goes and, and gives that to the press on the Sunday rather than actually, you know, keeping, keeping it within the negotiating room. So it ain't looking great. And I think you'd have to be pretty, pretty ballsy to put money on a deal coming out of that room. Alex Sobel, as a Labour MP, what are your red lines for any Labour deal? Um, is a confirmatory vote central? to? Yeah, what absolutely. I mean, uh, I was one of the MPs that led a letter which was signed by 118 MPs and MEPs, Labour MPs and MEPs, which said that we would agree a deal as long as it had a confirmatory referendum attached. Um, from the sort of flip side, obviously, the better the deal was, you know, it would be helpful because... I know we're all Romaniacs here and we think that everybody, in a, in, if we have another public vote, will go and dutifully troop to remain in the EU. That might not be the case. I mean, we can talk about what a campaign would look like later, maybe, um, considering the last one. So, um, But I think that the, the majority now, the majority of Labour MPs, aren't prepared to accept a deal without a confirmatory referendum attached. Which is already a bit of a turnaround, isn't it? It, it, I wouldn't say it's a turnaround. It's a growing movement. We're a movement party, and so we have moved, and that's where we are now. I mean, when I entered Parliament, <laughs> when I entered Parliament, the big, you know, the big rebellion was to support um, what is now Labour's Brexit deal. You know, 
if Labour's Brexit deal was Labour's Brexit deal in June 2017, we could have saved ourselves a whole load of hassle been under a year and a half of Labour deciding what its Brexit deal was because the Labour rebels, that is what they wanted at that time. Unfortunately, Labour Party took 18 months and then the Labour rebels decided what they wanted was a confirmatory referendum. So if we have another 18 months, let's see where we are there because that's the most likely scenario. On the, on the actual content of this stuff, you're putting aside sort of the, the second referendum stuff, it's not hard to get to where you need to be. You put down a customs union. I mean, most of this time that we talk about how much impact would you have talking about the EU's FTAs, it doesn't really matter because the truth is the business end of what will happen in a customs union is the side talks that Britain will hold with countries that the EU is doing an FTA and as it tries to secure the same agreement where we offer up stuff on services and regulatory alignment. So really, that's where the business end, and, and that seems a perfectly doable thing to add. Then you just start putting down basically pillars on top of the customs union. You can put down whatever you want on top of it, mm. of saying, well, look, fine, and we'll have regulatory harmonization in this sector. Car sector seems like the most obvious place to be. Of course, you're going to have to look for a really long time before you find a single sector that won't be calling for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and you suddenly get into the job of how much can we add to this thing without it looking like either a single market for goods which the EU won't accept, or just full single market membership, which we don't think they'll accept back home because it will entail freedom of movement. But the basic structure upon how you do this stuff, we know what it is. The reason this stuff can't work is primarily political reasons rather than actual end outcome reasons. Mm. So you think that if May gave enough ground, a deal could be done? Yeah, I, you know what? I honestly do, but she'd have to show them so much more because mm. Labour is going to split hard on this no matter what. Even if it was full single market, you're still going to lose a bunch of MPs and you're going to lose MPs to a situation which is not just a vote that we'll quickly forget. We'll be stuck in this thing for a long time and it'll be demonstrably worse than what we have. We will look much less powerful than we did. It'll be grubby and boring and humiliating for years to come. So everyone that voted against it will feel powerfully vindicated and that will, of course, act to leverage them away from the leadership. So mm. you're always going to be in trouble. But in terms of the proposition, the core proposition itself, people talk about landing zones. Can we spot it? You just think like, it's perfectly obvious what the fucking de- you know what would be in that deal. The question is the politics, and the politics I think is insurmountable. I was just say the, the irony might be that um, if a deal was done on that basis, you'd have a whole load of people going through the no lobby who disagreed with the deal, which is normal, but you'd also have a whole load of people going through the I lobby that also disagreed with the deal, and the only person that'd be happy would be Nick Bowles, who left the Conservative Party. <laughs> <laughs> you see, you see to, I, I don't disagree with anything that Ian or Alex said, but to me it's slightly more profound than that, because in order to find compromise, you need a minimal level of, of trust that the other side is going to do what they say they're going to do. And I think that's the bit that's broken down. Because on on the one side, we know May's going in will be replaced by some nightmarish uh, sort of ultra-Brexiteer. And on the Labour side, we know that Jeremy Corbyn has been dragged to this position like some petulant donkey, inch by inch. So neither side feels they can trust that even if they come to an arrangement... It won't be a case of just tipping us over the legal threshold, which means revoking is no longer an option. Because that's a big thing. That makes Remain suddenly a lot more difficult. It makes Remain a completely different proposition. And so in order to give that legal threshold up, you have to be pretty sure the other side will do what they say they're going to do. And I just don't think anyone can be in this environment, which is why then it goes to a confirmatory referendum. It acts as a lock on it, as it were. Yeah. 
Alex, do you think Labour's formulation of a Brexit vote under certain circumstances, the Labour leadership, I should say, does it wash with the electorate? Do people really understand it? Because it's hard enough for nerds like us to understand what those circumstances would be. No. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably a good size. (laughs) Well, I could give you the hour-long version. (laughs) Please don't. Because, you know, the fear among our listeners is that there's some superficial deal. I mean, it's magically no longer a Tory Brexit and therefore people won't get that vote. But does the Labour leadership understand the anger about that? Uh, That's a good question. Uh, I think that there's a level of understanding. Where I think the whole thing breaks down is that you can only get a Labour Brexit deal under a Labour government. And there is no Labour government. So there is no Labour Brexit deal. Mm. I mean, that's the simplest formulation. Mm -hmm. That was kind of the fatal flaw with Lexit right from the start, mm. wasn't it? This <laughs> idea that through Brexit you could implement some socialist utopia. It's like, yeah, but you're not in power. Mm. <laughs> but we've heard more than one pe- person say that enabling Brexit would be Labour's tuition fees moment. Do you, do you think it would be that serious in terms of a rupture of trust with the electorate? Well, I mean, the Lib Dems have come back after nine years, haven't they? We saw that on, on Friday, so I think potentially it could be a lot worse because... Tuition fees, you know, is an issue in a particular part of of society and actually for a particular... Obviously, you live with the tuition fees quite a long time, but all the people who who didn't pay them, you know, it doesn't affect them directly. You know, before, I was one of the last people not to pay tuition fees. Um, But Brexit affects everybody um, and will have very long-lasting consequences. So I don't think it would be as easy to bounce back as the Lib Dems have over tuition fees. This all takes place against a backdrop of local elections where the great British public expressed its insistence that Parliament just get on with Brexit by voting in droves for pro-Remain parties. <laughs> People from Jeremy Hunt to John McDonnell claimed it was a mass vote to get Brexit done instead of a vote to not do Brexit at all. Alex, does the country buy this idea that the way to signal your support for Brexit is to back a lot of anti-Brexit parties? <laughs> well, uh- Listen, I've heard this point so much now, um, even by quite respectable people mm. uh, saying, oh, the real winners were the independents, and assuming mm. that all the independents were as a block Brexiters, which is just not true. I, I watched the results through the night, and, you know, in most cases, there were local issues. There was some kind of building on the green belt thing going on. And, you know, there were loads of different reasons why independence did well. And, yes, some of them were ex-UKIP. Some of them were a brexit vote. But even then, they were only about two-thirds of the gains made by clearly Remain parties, um, including in places like Sunderland. I mean, there was a swing of... 12% to Lib Dems from Labour in Sunderland and 10% from Labour to Greens in Sunderland. So you can't explain that away by saying, oh, everyone is just anti-politics at the moment. And so they decided to vote for Vince Cable's party. I mean, it's ridiculous. Columnist Luke Akehurst have pointed out that the most pro-Corbyn and anti-Brexit areas weren't voting, London, for example. So did that have an impact too, do you think? Yeah, it will. It'll be a lot worse when London is in the reckoning. I think, I think Labour will get a monumental spanking in London. 
So, yes, look, the story was ultimately people are voting for Remain parties and there's no other way of... Spe- I mean, the extraordinary fucking spectacle of this trying to be spun <laughs> as a victory for Brexit was, was almost... It is one of those moments where you're looking at the TV and being like, am I going insane? Like, part of the reason that this podcast is good for my mental health is you can at least have an hour in, in a week where you're just like, I'm not mad, right? That is com- a completely bonkers approach like for anyone to have taken. There are caveats to all this. I mean, it seemed like the Tories were losing to the Lib Dems in more Remain voting areas. It did seem like actually some of Labour's Remain votes seemed to, as far as we can ascertain, seem to hold up in more metropolitan areas. In 60% leave voting areas, they were being punished more. And in 70% leave voting areas, they were being punished more than that. So actually, it's not necessarily the case that the party looking at those results... There is The Sunderland thing was, was extraordinary. But I, I think when the party looks at it, they will be able to construct a viable argument to say, we can still triangulate the Remainers into position. That is not a dead project for us yet, but we are losing the leave vote. So you, there were complications. There were complications in the picture. But again, this all takes place, as you've just sort of alluded to. In, these are not particularly remaining areas most of the times we're looking at. Even when we look at places, you know, like Winchester, where it's pretty tight, you know, this, this kind of response. Mm. So the, the response from people was completely insane. It did, but it didn't quite get us all the way to where we needed to be to make the argument with Labour itself, I think, even though you could make it much more strongly, for instance, with the Conservatives. In the parallel universe of the Brexit press, the Telegraph and Express claimed that hundreds of thousands of people spoiled their ballot papers or wrote, I demand Brexit on them. And whether that's true or not, how real is that impulse to reject? It's not. It's not. Very small numbers. Very small numbers. Uh, So that impulse to reject any party, though, I mean, clearly there were some spoiled ballots. Should we worry about that? Is that is that a, a trend that's that's worrying? Given that you know there were parties available to people, usually not not in every constituency, but often where they could express their either hmm. pro or anti Brexit views. Um, well, at least they're turning up. No, but no, I, I don't I don't mean that facetiously at all. You know, I think spoiling your ballot is a perfectly valid expression of democratic Mm -hmm. will. You're turning up at the polling station and you're writing what you want to happen on the ballot. I think that's completely valid compared to a situation where, you know, thousands of people were staying home and just not participating, completely apathetic to politics. I think this is an improvement. I don't say that, you know, to be funny. Even supposing that this vote meant that we do desperately want a deal. I mean, as Remainers, should we want a deal? Some form of compromise that dissatisfies each side equally? It depends uh, what you want and what your personal red lines are. So, you know, my personal red line is freedom of movement. So therefore it is the single market. And I can live with anything that offers me the single market. And I can't live with anything that does not offer me that. That's my personal shit. That's how it goes for me. I think you have to be pretty hard pushed to find a Remainer who really cares about the issue, who is genuinely satisfied by a customs union. Even the trade nerds don't really give too much of a fuck Mm. about a customs union. It's just, you know, it's useful. It's good. You take it rather than not have it. But you're not going to die in a ditch over it, basically. So, you know, you have to make your personal call on that. I know where mine is. And for other people, it's full remain. For others, it's you revoke and the referendum. You know, everyone has their own red lines. But but it's also a matter of timing rather than only position. Because there was a point right after the referendum vote where I think you could have brought people together, where the majority of leavers thought it would be something like Norway because the result was so close. The majority of Remainers would have settled for something like Norway because it was such Mm -hmm. a close vote. And you could have done that. But what's happened in the last three years is that the two sides have been pulled further apart. And so it's, it's become 
sort of more existential for Romanians because I know that if we go into a Norway-type situation, there will be people that will be actively working to pull us further and further and further out of the EU. And so it becomes this this sort of last stand, Tolkien-like fight for Helm's Deep. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It becomes this sort of monumental that we must draw the line here and either we win or we lose. And that it doesn't help things. You know, I recognize that fully. It's it's an unhelpful state to be in, but psychologically, it's, it's, it's I think where most people are. I I'm not I'm not sure any of this matters because I just don't think they're going to come back with a single market deal. Yeah, that's from, true. From that's their true. thing, I just don't think right. it's going to happen. And that idea seems more dead to me now than it's been for some time. Even though probably under a different leader in the Commons. If you had Rory Stewart or something to go over in an election where he got, you know, even if he had the same kind of numbers but had some sort of uh, momentum behind him, some kind of validity mm. to approaching anything, you could probably find the numbers in the Commons to, to do it as an idea. I just don't see that politically any of this is going to happen. So I don't think we're going to have to face those, those sort of challenges. What happened in your wards, Alex? Because... Um because I know that Leeds in general voted narrowly yeah. to remain, but but your patch was remain. quite remaining, which must remain. which tells me by yeah. default that there are other bits of Leeds mm. which are very yeah. Brexity yeah. in order for that to mm. sort of average out. So what happened in the locals with you? Well, Leeds also has very big wards. So in my constituency, which is only four wards, so two of those wards had Labour councillors, one had a Liberal and one had a Conservative. And um, the late, one of the Labour wars, we only won last year, and we lost it again. And the message and, and the Green vote shot up. Actually, the Liberal vote was fairly flat. Our vote went down, the Green vote went up. And that was directly people on the doorstep saying either we're, not, we're staying home, not voting Labour, or we are not voting Labour because of your Brexit position mm. and we're switching to the Greens. And where we thought the Liberals would lose votes, they didn't. And they right. just sort of... Flatline. And who took that extra councillor? Do you? The Liberals. The Liberals. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, and and on the doorstep, I was obviously this is my position, this is the councillor's position, and it was the position of the people. And they said, "That's fine. We understand it's a council election, but we need to register a protest." And actually, a lot of people actually said they were going to vote Labour and did did vote Labour across the constituency and said, "Actually, but when the Europeans come, we won't be voting Labour anymore. We'll be mm. voting something else." You know, one of the three. Mm. three small parties that are supporting, you know, second referendum slash revoke. So we'll, you know, so we're waiting for the European elections to see that play out. That's fascinating. Yeah. Alex, what are your red lines, though, to return to, to that? What, what things would you be prepared my, to live with? My, mine are similar to Ian's. In the 2017 general election, and this is a large part why I got elected, I said that my minimum position would be a Brexit deal that didn't harm our jobs, our workers' rights, environmental standards. And that meant staying within the European single market and having a customs union, which is effectively the same customs union as we have now. Although, you know, you could call it what you want, you know, um, but it, that's what it would be. Um, and that would, you know, and effectively we voted to leave the European Union, we would leave the European Union, we'd cede our political seat at the table, but we would, you know, we would take part in the um, trade deals, which are some of the best trade deals in the world, the best negotiated trade deals in the world. And, you know, we'd have to live with rules that other countries made, which is why I'd see it as a secondary option. But I could live with it. Labour's campaign chief, Andrew Gwynne, said the party should should not move more to a Remain stance because the party is trying to appeal to Leaves and Remainers. But it sounds as though, as you see it, 
it could move more to a Remain stance, just not an avert, more, more of a Norway stance, and it could square that circle. Potentially. I mean, I mean, there's a danger here. You can say we're trying to appeal to Leavers and Remainers by having this, you know, middle-of-the-road position, but equally, it might also not appeal to Leavers and Remainers and we don't get anybody's vote, mm. apart from people who don't really care about Brexit, who care about all the other issues. And I think that is the direction of travel. Um, if you want people who care about Brexit one way or the other, you've got to pick a lane. If you if you if you just want to appeal to people who, who don't think it's a big issue, you want to concentrate on austerity and public services, the NHS, then you'd be that party. But that's probably not going to be a party government in this country. Before we move on, let's have a quick recap on those EU elections and some candidate fun. The Brexit <laughs> the Brexit party didn't run in the locals, but YouGov put it at 30% in the European elections, with Labour on 21% and Change UK independent group uh, Chuck Indy, I don't know, at 9% at the end of April. Alex, They've changed their name again, by the way. Yeah, they have, haven't they? Have they fucking did it again? Are yeah. you serious? Well, the, the Twitter handle, anyway. What is it now? The in group? They yeah. just, you're just like, well, again? You've fucking done it again. Uh, so, now there's a, so now yeah. I think there's five and names And did you see somebody bought their old Twitter account for hard Brexit? Yeah. <laughs> so now if you <laughs> Google great. the independent group, it yeah. is now the hard Brexit Twitter mm. account. Top work, lads. Top work. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's not it's not impressive. It's they not easy, is it, sweetheart? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's that part is quite easy. You just pick a fucking name. Like I just that part you can do. No, quite come easy. on, who's done it? Who's done it in the last twenty years? <laughs> <laughs> it's just easy. I'll just call the party Bob. <laughs> we could all start our own political parties if that's how easy that's it is. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Alex, is it simplistic to think that a, a pivot to remain could put Labour closer to parity with Brexit Party? Because all the indications are that Labour voters rank Brexit lower as a priority and are less likely to withhold their vote over Brexit. I think in a European election, in the middle of Brexit, Brexit is the most important issue. Nobody's going to go, oh, we're going to elect some European Parliament and that is going to resolve the problems of the NHS because it's not. So, I mean, the, th the things, you know, the things you can talk about in the course of European elections that aren't Brexit are actually what the European Parliament does if we, and I'm very passionate about this, get a socialist, Franz Timmerman, to be the president of the Commission. Because one of the, particularly from the Lexiteers, one of the criticisms of Europe is what it did to Greece and um, how it acted after the crash. If there's a socialist in charge... It'll be very different, you know, and that, that's about improving our environmental standards, that's improving workers' rights, improving minimum wage across Europe. And that's why, you know, the Labour Party has two jobs here. One is to push that socialist agenda, which I think Jeremy Corbyn's going to be very comfortable with doing and supporting Franz Simmons to be president of the Commission. But the other one is saying, well, actually, we need to keep in this game. This is our game for the whole of Europe. Withdrawing from it's not going to help workers mm. around the world. You know, never mind just in Europe. Do we think the local elections have coloured the way the elect EU elections will go? Um, in particular with the Lib Dems. I mean, they did quite surprisingly well, didn't they, Ian? Um, mm -hmm. Will they get a boost, if you like, from that performance? Yeah, I suspect they will. We can always we can always overcalculate because if you remember back just before the 2017 general election, we took the local election results, which was catastrophically bad for Labour and presumed that there would that, that would be a very good signpost for what would happen and it, and it happened not to be. But you would expect that as a good showing of muscular electoral force, the Lib Dems will do better than we expected. Mm. And if the Greens are doing better, then it, it seems to translate to the idea that Change UK, whatever the fuck they're called, will be doing worse than we would expect. Um, once you, you know, we, we are still, we have to keep on remembering this, no matter how many nice things they say about Nigel Farage, he is getting about the same numbers that he used to get under UKIP 
four years ago and you put the remain parties together you put all those nine percents together those nine to twelve percents for those parties and you get about the same number that he has we're not looking at any fundamental change in the in the country we're looking at his ability to corral all of that support into one brand and that's proving very effective to him i have to say i have become concerned though about the manner in which he's campaigning it's starting to scare me a bit because what's interesting about it is it actually doesn't have any content at all there's no manifesto there are no policies there are actually when you listen to them talk no actual meaningful political statements in the speeches not even on brexit no not even on brexit all brexit all, all there is is it what it is is it's that primarily the, the the communication is emotional yeah you've it's been betrayed humiliation we will stop it now with whatever. And, and it doesn't actually go any further than that. Now, that really is, this is a dangerous phrase, but that is post-politics. That's the kind of stuff mm. that you do see with very dangerous political movements that are harnessing a sense of grievance and a sense of anger without offering any rational basis for a voter to, on a logical assessment, support the party or not. You're appealing simply to emotions themselves. And, and that stuff does scare me. Because he's holding rallies now, isn't he? Dorian, um, you know, a, a co-host of, of Romaniacs, is, is uh, pointed out that he is actually holding big rallies, not just political meetings, but rallies. And the language is important here because mm-hmm. they are designed to whip up a frenzy, as you say, of yeah. fear and emotion. And, and, and some of the quotes coming out of those have been pretty terrifying. Uh, people saying that they basically want to hang Theresa May. Yeah, lock her up is coming up. All of, all of the uh, the Trumpist stuff at best, you said lock her up comes up. Betrayal, all of that, that core narrative, very, very old. Yeah. And again, and this is always the thing is, if you do not give rational proposition, if you do not give policies, you strip out what makes democracy function. Because there is no way of responding to the vote. Mm. The vote is an entirely emotional development. And that is poison, absolute fucking poison. Getting back to the Remain vote and the way that it may split or, or not or not split, the evidence I'm seeing so far, and actually we've got a piece on LSE Brexit coming out to this effect shortly, is that voting tactically may well help Remain in certain constituencies, in particular in the North East, the ones with a small number of candidates, but with um, constituencies with a larger number of candidates uh, uh, MEP candidates, you might as well vote according to the party that you 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 most prefer, basically, because the way the percentages stack up make yeah. it more likely that they will anyway get get elected, which is something I hadn't seen before. That's interesting. And um, we're seeing now that, uh, according to Laura Kunzberg at BBC, that it's highly likely there will be one People's Vote candidate in Peterborough with the Greens and the Lib Dems both. Uh, pulling their candidates, so that would mean that Change UK were the only only party running, and it it could be uh, confirmed tomorrow. And the idea apparently came from Change UK, which is you know promising. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, so they, even at this late stage, it looks like there might be some progress towards a Remain alliance, which I hadn't expected at all. But not for the European election. So this is obviously just for a by election for a constituency yeah. seat. So it's a little bit easier there. I don't think anyone's talking. I don't think they would have the ability to. Well, I suppose they could stop pouring their resources into yeah, challenging yeah, one another. Uh, yeah, but, they can. Yeah. They can allocate resources differently. Mm. But I, I mean, I think a lot will depend on how polls shape up closer to the time, because it's 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 a lot about who builds up momentum, mm-hmm. you know. Mm. And and I think that is a danger 
for Labour. I think there is a real danger for Labour in the sense that voting is a little bit about habit. And actually, for someone who has voted Labour all their lives, to go and cast a ballot for someone else crosses a psychological threshold that I don't think should be underestimated because, you know, if if something happens and let, let us say momentum uh, gathers behind uh, Lib the Lib Dems, and they end up ahead of Labour in the European poll, which is a, a possible outcome, then you end up in a situation where next general election, those people who voted for Lib Dems are thinking, well, why not then? You know, our constituency is a marginal, why, mm-hmm. why not? Um, and that is a, a, becomes a real danger for the Labour movement, I think. But the biggest story, uh, really, is, as Ian has pointed out, is how many people are prepared to vote for the Brexit Party, which didn't even exist until a few weeks ago, the 30%. How do we feel that Brexit Party candidates like Anne Whittacombe and the Royal Marine veteran James Glancy will feel about sharing a platform with Claire Fox, who's a Brexit Party candidate in the North West? She was a member of the Revolutionary Communist Party which unequivocally supported the IRA. And uh, Anne Whittacombe was at the Tory conference in Brighton, um, where, which was bombed, and her friends were killed. Fox called Colin Parry the father of Warrington victim Tim Parry and would not recant her stance. And the Brexit party says she supported the Good Friday Agreement and does not hold these views now. But is that really credible, do you think, Alex? Mm. Um, I mean... It, to an extent, it doesn't matter for the European election. The you know the candidates are, are Nigel Farage's sock puppets or proxies, mm-hmm. so it it's it's irrelevant. You know, it's not like they will disagree on some matter of policy because they have no policies. Um, it, it's a simple it's a simple um, proposition that appeals in a really sort of direct way to the voters who feel disaffected. Um, and this will then become, because we have seen this pattern with Nigel Farage's groups, you know, before with UKIP, their, whatever they get, 15 MEPs, will end up mm. uh, nine MEPs in a year and a half's time because they will um, then <laughs> have problems between them and they will end up in punch-ups like they have in the past. Um, and, and this is why I think it doesn't make it a, a necessarily a long-term threat. I think what we will see is what I experienced in Greece with Golden Dawn. They, they, they ride a golden crest, usually in a European election. They reach a ceiling and then they begin to drop off um, from that as people drill down into who are the, these actual people and what policies do they actually represent. So... Um, you know, I wouldn't say I'm relaxed about it, but, you know, it was always what was going to happen. It's what happened last European election, you know. Um, UK walked it. If anything, I think now the fact that there are parties there that represent explicitly pro-European uh, positions is an improvement to what happened last election, where all you had was an anti-European party and then everyone else was meh. Hmm. There's going to be a lot of noise. I mean, a lot of fucking noise about this. But then at the end of it, we're going to get there. There's going to be the results. 
it's not going to have any practical real change in where we are. It's going to be, what is the interpretive change from this result? Like, what will it make the Tories do because they think they're in, in trouble over it? And of course, that'll be strong because if they're willing to interpret the local election results in this way, they'll <laughs> definitely go overboard the other way by the time that they see there's actual votes for a party called Brexit. <laughs> but, you know, ultimately, you really tell the dust to settle and the fundamental problems in Parliament and the country, the blockages about Brexit will still be there. The fundamental undeliverable nature of the project will still be there. So there'll be an awful lot of sound and fury and Remainers will have lost a chance to demonstrate their strength. I do think that's true. But ultimately, I think we'll probably forget about the elections about a week or two after they're done. I think we'll forget about them when Donald Trump turns up 10 days after. No, you know, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. And then he'll lecture us about Brexit for two well, days. Oh, wow. And Unless he has a big you know, meeting with Nigel Farage, a big photo, oh, of which, course. He, which I expect fully. I, I don't, we don't have a golden lift in Parliament, so I'll have to do it somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The Labour MP for Leeds North West, Alex Sobel, has been our guest this week. You said to Alex that the economic political agenda of the Labour Party now is where I would like it to be. Where do you place yourself on the support for Jeremy Corbyn scale? Uh, I, I support the... I mean, I'm a supporter of, of the leadership and its policies. I've never been somebody that's been like a personality supporter of, of Lee. I'm not really that sort of politician. I'm... I'm I'm involved in the Labour Party because politics is a battle of ideas and I want my ideas to win out in the country. So the 2017 manifesto, like you said, is is where my uh, politics lie. I'm what was, would traditionally have been called the soft left of the Labour Party. I want to see a very redistributive economy. Um, I want to see um, um, ownership in the hands of the people, not in the hands of the private sector or actually in the hands of a st- state central control. And I think that's where where we've moved to, more or less, within the Labour Party. What's your issue that you're passionate about? Well, my primary issue really is, is climate change. I'm the chair of Labour's Environment Group of MPs. I'm on the Environment Audit Committee. I've been an environmental activist for 25 years. Um, and actually... I know we're here in Maniacs and Brexit is is the thing we're all talking about, but climate change is a much, much bigger challenge, not just for our country, but obviously for the whole of the planet. And um, political elites, if I want to put it that way, are a lot of a lot of the time ignoring that challenge or or not seeing the seriousness enough of it and not acting towards it. And I think the recent, you know. Um, climate emergency debate we had, the protests in London and all around the world. You know, it's taken a 16-year-old girl, actually, for politicians to get their heads out of their ass and look at this. So I think we're coming round to it, thankfully. Because Labour came out a bit belatedly, uh, I think, perhaps for Extinction Rebellion. And there's a kind of old Labour strand of thinking that privileges industry, isn't there, that says that we've got to keep the uh, factories running, we've got to keep things being reduced, we've got to keep people in jobs. Do you see that beginning to change as new ideas start to come out and we start to have ideas about a Green New Deal and ways in which we can both create employment and help the environment? Mm. I mean, if the plant's to survive with humans inhabiting it, we've got two choices. We go... We go back to an agrarian sort of lifestyle, and which would also mean a huge drop in population to support a much smaller population on, on the planet. Or we have a fourth industrial revolution and we move wholly to clean tech, whether you call it the Green New Deal or 
my phrase the Marshall Plan for the Environment. We're going to have to have that industrial revolution. We're going to need to, we need to be having it now. I mean, it started. The technology is there, but it needs to be. We need to it like like the first industrial revolution. We need to move through very quickly mm. and take the old technologies out and put the new technologies in. So suppose Labour gets the general election that it wants in the next few months, say by before the end of the year. What will that solve? Because the projections from the local elections were that the Labour and Tory percentage would be very, very similar and we presumably be faced with yet another hung parliament. Does Labour really want a general election? Is it really that desperate for one? I mean, well, I mean, you know, Labour isn't a homogenous group. So um, (coughs) I think that um, if you're the party of opposition, you always want an opportunity to become the party of government. So if um, that opportunity arises, then you take it. And I think that's where we are. And I think, you know, I'm not really sure what the government's doing right at the moment. So having a change of government is is important. I mean, but you're right, you know, the current polling, the local election results, we've seen a few European election results, all points to another hung parliament. And, you know, who are Labour going to need to support support from in in uh, Parliament to become government? Then it's sort of small parties like the SNP or the Liberals or, or whoever else. You know, it's not going to go and ask the Conservatives to form a government with or the DUP, because that's the Conservatives' job. And there isn't much else in Parliament. So unless we get an outright majority, which at the moment the polling doesn't suggest, then we're going to have to go to those parties for one. And you'd obviously hope that would be the Greens, even though they only have well, they only one. have one seat. So exactly. I mean, with one short, I think we'll probably be in government anyway. Yes. You know, the polling's not <laughs> saying we're going to be one short; it's going to say we're quite a lot short. So, you know, so um, it, we'd need to have some form of um, supply agreement for our budget. And I think actually, you know, the 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 climate emergency debate we had last week, which which Labour called the voices from the Liberals and the SNP were very similar to the Labour ones. So on those issues, on the issues of climate change, probably budgetary issues, the NHS, education, we could get some real good cross-party support for that. I'm interested in what you say because we had Rachel Shabi on last week and, and she was saying that one of the things people underestimate is that the more radical Labour's agenda, the bigger mm. majority it will yes. need in Parliament to implement mm. it. So, um, I mean, how do we... I get it. I just don't get how we get from A to B. Mm. I am fully on board with B. Yes. I just don't see the route at the moment I, to that yeah. overwhelming victory, really, that Labour needs to implement a radical um, plan. I think anybody starting now from the grass, from the ground up would find it difficult to find an electoral coalition that gave them an outright majority in the country at the moment. Mm. So um, I think Rachel's absolutely right. I know Rachel, and she's always right. So, um, <laughs> uh, um, and, and, you know, the 2017 manifesto was radical, and the next manifesto actually will have to be, in certain areas, even more radical, certainly more detailed. Um, but, it, but it will be difficult to draw um, an outright majority from from that because of, actually because of Brexit and, and the way the country is. So, I mean, the, I mean, you know, like, if we want to project forward a little bit, I don't think we're going to get a deal through the talks, which we talked about. We're going to get to October 31st, what's going to happen then? We're either going to have another no-deal cliff edge, which Parliament will reject, 
and then the EU will ask, will, will say if you want an extension, guys, you can have a long extension. Probably past when we can have a general election again. So we are going to go into another general election unless we resolve this through a deal passing or getting a confirmatory ballot or, or both of those things together, mm. which is my preference. Um, <coughs> and um, and and then we'll have this, you know, then we'll have the this will just spin out and it will just sort of become a bit more diffuse. I think the angle will become more diffuse, um, but it, it will it will always be in the background. Will be in a miasma of Brexit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it's it's. I mean, it's interesting that I think in a parallel universe somewhere, Brexit handled correctly mm. actually becomes the crowbar that gets a radical Labour yeah. government yeah. in with a big majority, mm. just on, not yeah. in this reality. And, I mean, and coming back to the European elections is why I think they are really important. If Franz Timmermans becomes the president, you know, in replacing Juncker then that's a platform to do that yeah, yeah, yeah. because you have the socialists running the commission. Yeah. If you have the conservatives running the commission, then no, you're not going to get that. And actually, the EU isn't your allied step by step on this path, on you know Jeremy Corbyn's path to a government and implementing those policies. You have to fight it. And so that's, you know, that's why actually I'm quite passionate about European elections and why I think a vote for Labour is the right vote, you know, because... We need that all the way through Europe, and I think we'll get there as a party in terms of Brexit. So I'm thinking I'm playing the long game, not the short game. Good. It's impossible to ignore the anti-Semitism scandal. What makes the new left so obsessed with this one issue? How has it come to dominate the discourse about the Labour Party? I mean, I think it, the reason it's come to dominate the discourse about the Labour Party is because it's so unexpected, because people don't think of the left even the far left, as people who are racists. That is, that is the, the owned by the far right. That is owned by Tommy Robinson and, you know, um, going back a bit, Nick Griffin, mm. you know, and the BNP, and that's their, that's their domain. Um, and the fact that it's come into the Labour Party, or in some cases some people have been in the Labour Party quite a long time and it's come to the fore, or it's been uncovered, I mean, you know, um, is... Um, people find surprising. I think that's 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 one reason. How are you going to get rid of it now? I think that um, that there's a there's the the issue of our process, our disciplinary process, in the Labour Party, are uh, are quite severe, and I'd like to see an independent um, process, an independent panel who would make the decision. So it, it, you couldn't say that those decisions were being made. Um, were being politically motivated and also that the people doing it had a lack of expertise. An expert independent panel, I think, is the way to resolve this. So people would be kicked out of the party and not allowed to rejoin ever or after a certain time? I mean, I think that... that I mean, this is getting quite a detailed discussion, but um, that the party has... I don't think the sanctions the party has should change. The party has a range of sanctions, and that is um, includes permanent exclusion, that means exclusion for a period or people who aren't excluded but go on training um, and, you know, people who once retweeted or shared something that was anti-Semitic apologised for it, said they didn't realise the underlying narrative going on and would like to learn more about anti-Semitism. I personally don't think they should have a life ban from the Labour Party. Mm. I think that they should be going on some training and if after that there are no more incidents, then that's fine. But I think we have people who are when they're challenged with it, double down by, you know, 
making some other commentary that actually we have people who you know are suspended and then go through and then while they're suspended say well all my suspension is due to a you know a shady you know cabal of people who are secretly running <laughs> the media or whatever it is you know whatever trope they're using that's like very clear cut to me they're doubling down there you know they've got a very fixed view and there's no you know, no hope for them. And also I think that the um, automatic solution should also be for anybody, anybody that um, uh, undertakes horse, Holocaust denial or Holocaust minimalism, you know. Um, and I think that is, that's a severe red line for me on anti-Semitism. Alex, thanks. Thank you. The end of the show is here, and that means something else for the Brexit time capsule. Alex Sobel, you're the guest, so you get to choose something for a reinforced subsurface repository of stuff we'll need if we leave the EU. What have you chosen? Well, I was initially thinking, because I'm sat next to Alex and he's so charming, that, um, <laughs> that, uh, that I would miss EU citizens living in this country. But actually, I would actually miss the environmental protections the EU has given us even more. The government had to go three times to court because of clean air directives from the EU because they were failing to implement them. And who will protect us when we've left the EU? I will. <laughs> <laughs> This week's closing language clip is in Dutch from listener Floor Plicard and it's a little longer than usual, so here we go. Lieve Britse vrienden, nu er wederom verlenging is aangevraagd voor jullie vertrek uit de Europese Unie, zijn wij hier in Nederland een stuk geruster op. 31 oktober lijkt misschien nabij, maar de brexit begint behoorlijk ver uit het zicht te raken. Wij putten hoop uit het aloude gezegde, van uitstel komt afstel. That means, dear British friends, now that another request has been made for your departure from the European Union, we are much more confident here in the Netherlands about a good outcome. October the 31st may seem near, but Brexit is getting pretty far out of sight. We draw hope from the old saying, from postponement comes cancelling. <laughs> Let's hope so. Send us British Rail saying. <laughs> <laughs> Send us your European language clips at info at Romaniacs.com. We'll use the best ones. And that's the end of the show. Alex Sobel, thanks for coming on the show. What's next on the campaign trail? Well, the European elections, of course. I'm heading back. <laughs> I've got Keir Starmer in my constituency tomorrow. Oh, nice. He will explain um, Labour's Brexit policy for a <laughs> full hour. Is he bringing Seamus Mill? I think Seamus might be otherwise engaged. <laughs> you can only hope so, but I'm not sure he won't pop up. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Now please be upstanding for our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a roll call of some of our latest Patreon backers. Goodbye and thanks from me to John Henderson, Thomas Cattell, Rodri Marsden, THE Rodri Marsden, Alison Cumberbatch, Donna Marsh, Lucy Gaunt, Gordon M., Kate Smith, and Simon Duckworth, and especially his father-in-law. Hello. And hello to Neil Murphy, Tobias Wood, Robin Smith, John Smith, Mark Francis, not you, not you, Mark, Wesley Marsh, Cian Harrington, Gareth Bowker, Neil Ritchie, and Patrick Massey. And hello from me to John Maynard, Emma Creasy, Wasrick, Victoria Morgan, Sean Taylor, David Hall, Graham Clark, Paul Thornburg, Christopher Cornwall and Robert Jackson. We'll see you all next week.
Romaniacs was presented by Roz Taylor with Ian Dunt and Alex Andreu. The producer is Andrew Harrison and audio production was by me, Sophie Black. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.